Well, good morning. Um, this morning's Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, um, beginning at verse 17, um, through to the end of the chapter. So, beginning at verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be benefit that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Aussies hate hypocrisy. You know, when people say one thing and do another, you know, whether it's politicians or sports stars like seven times Tour de France winner Lance Armstrong, you know, he was a staunch opponent of drugs in sport, but a serial offender. And it's the same when it comes to Christians. Uh, The press certainly delights in exposing Christian leaders who say one thing, they espouse ethics and morality and are then discovered to be having an affair or lining their pockets with the money of their members. Uh, There used to be an old bumper sticker that was on cars. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And it contains the truth. And yet, shouldn't being a believer make a huge difference in our lives individually as well as in a church community? And the answer is yes, of course, it should. Last week we looked at the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. You know, what it means to be a truth in love community. And this week, and in the weeks coming, the rest of the series, we'll continue to explore the practical implications of believing the gospel. So, let's look at it together. Christians who talk the talk, we should walk the walk. That is, there should be a consistency between what we believe and how we live. When you come to the second half of this letter, Ephesians 4, 5 and 6, it's actually full of walking words, although uh, some of our Bible translations obscure it a bit. So let me show you where these walking words are in this section we're coming to. In chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. 
Now, literally, it's to walk worthy of the calling you've received. Or if you go to chapter 4, verse 17, uh, I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And again, literally, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Or if we go across to chapter 5, verse 2, it says, walk in the way of love. The same word. When you go to chapter 5, verse 8, now you're light in the Lord, live as children of light. Uh, Or in chapter 5, verse 15, it says, be careful then how you live. Literally, be careful then how you walk. And each statement about walking shows what a truth in love community should look like. But before we get into the walking, uh, we do need to keep remembering that walking like a Christian, you know, Christian ethics, doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Uh, I've got a silver birch tree in my backyard and I'm not known for my horticultural knowledge. So say I decided I wanted to grow fruit in my backyard, you know, an orange tree. And I went out and bought a few bags of oranges and came home and stapled them to the branches on my birch, birch tree. You know, voila, an orange tree. You know, well, no, no way. I mean, fruit is generated by a healthy tree, not the other way around. And I think people get this wrong all the time. They think that good behaviour makes you a Christian. And no, that's not the case. The, the fruit is of a transformed life. And that's the point we saw back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Do you remember? It said, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What we see in this section we're looking at today, the second half of chapter 4, is that this changed lifestyle, it flows out of a changed mind, a transformed mind. Let me read from chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. Now when the Bible talks about the mind, it's much more comprehensive than just our thought processes. It's more like when we talk about someone's worldview or the convictions that drive their life. It's, you know, what makes us tick. So when these verses, they talk about futile thinking or darkened understanding or ignorance, it's not saying unbelievers are stupid. I mean, we we all know lots of intelligent unbelievers. And like you, I also know lots of good living unbelievers, people who are generous and kind, who love their families, who work hard at their jobs, who tend their gardens. They lead happy lives and they don't seem futile. But of course, the point being made here in Ephesians 4 is that unbelievers are 
cut off from God. Uh, they, they have no relationship with God. And in that, in that sense, they're darkened in their understanding. You see, someone who is not a Christian, they live with a three-dimensional view of life. It's all about what you can see and taste and touch and feel, uh, careers and toys and, and family life and relationships, all on a busy treadmill. Life is full. It's just that it isn't ultimately going anywhere. And it's this fourth dimension, the nature of an, an eternal relationship with God and his people, that's what's absent. And of course, if you remove that perspective, it does mean that life is ultimately futile. Uh, it is just about three score years and ten. You know, the job and the house and the family, the leisure, the hobbies. And then you die. In verse 19, we saw it talks about them having given themselves over to sensuality, you know, to indulge in impurity or greed. And you might think that's a bit of a harsh assessment. But I think it's actually a very astute observation of a world that puts God to one side. And we've seen it in Australia over the last 50 years. You know, the rise in individualism and the decline in concern for the vulnerable, you know, the ageing or the frail, those with disabilities or the unborn. But if you're a believer, you don't live with futile thinking. God has given us insight into the eternal realities and these drive our hearts and our actions. Uh, we were the living dead. That's what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. But by God's grace, we've been made alive forever. So how do we avoid living like flat earth Christians? Well, as we get into Ephesians 4, it involves putting on a new set of clothes. Taking off the old and putting on the new. You'll be able to see on the screen right now a photo of me on my wedding day. And there I am, resplendent in my camel brown three-piece suit with a tan velour bow tie and a very fashionable haircut and an extremely trendy moustache. Ephesians 4 talks about putting off the old wardrobe and putting on the new Christian lifestyle and fashion. Let me read from verses 22 to 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there are three wardrobe changes that I want to look, at you, look with at you as uh, we go through this passage together. The first is the way we, we speak, the way we use our tongue. We're to get rid of certain ways of speaking. In verse 25, it talks about getting rid of falsehood or lying. And then in verse 29, it talks about ridding ourselves of unwholesome talk. The big idea that runs through these three chapters, 4, 5 and 6, is a commitment to unity by God's people, maintaining family relationships. And we know that dishonesty, it destroys relationships. Lying just breaks trust. Uh, unwholesome talk, verse 29, it's a little more specific. 
it's identifying the words that are harmful or unhelpful uh, when we abuse other people with our tongues. You see, how can you negatively put down someone who is made in the image of God? Or when you use vulgar speech that's not edifying. It's interesting, in our culture, swearing is used for punctuation. I mean, it's just so common. I remember when I worked as a lawyer uh, 40 years ago, I acted for a man who was arrested for swearing in a public place. But our culture has shifted dramatically. Uh, No one would ever get arrested for the language that he used today, even if it still was in the penal code. But for believers, why would you ever use four-letter words or however many letters there are in the words you use? Or, or why would we ever use the name of God or the Lord Jesus, yeah, the one who died for us? Why would we use that in a trivial sort of a way? Now, we do need to be careful we don't become you know, the spot-it-and-stop-it brigade. It's easy for right concern to become cri- crippling sort of legalism. We need to be careful. Verse 31 also talks about getting rid of slander or uh, gossip. It is so easy to speak with subtle contempt for others or to attribute wrong motives to other people. And we can get really clever at disguising our motivations. We've all been in those sort of conversations, you know, where someone says, you know, Bob and Bob, Jenny, whoever they are, you know, they're a really nice person. And then there's the pause. And you know what's coming, don't you? You know, Bob and Jenny, they are a really nice person, but... Now, can I say, if you haven't got anything positive to say about someone, especially a brother or sister in Christ, don't speak. Or if you think there is something you need to raise with somebody, then do have the courage and the love to say it to them. You know the experience like I do. You know, it gets back to you that you've upset somebody. But instead of that person having talked to you, they've chatted with mutual friends or acquaintances. If you're upset with somebody, talk to them. Don't go around collecting listening ears who will side with your perspective. See, because if you do that, that is the behaviour that divides a church. And if you're in a conversation when someone says, you know, X is a good person, but, well, maybe that's the time to just quietly extract yourself or to ask whether it's appropriate and helpful uh, to raise that in this context or ask them whether they've spoken to the person who's hurt them. But when it comes to our language, We're also encouraged to put on our new verbal wardrobe. And verse 25, it talks about speaking truthfully with your neighbour, for we're all members of the one body. It's developing the idea that we saw in the first half of the chapter. We maintain unity of the body in the truth of the gospel by speaking honestly to one another. Uh, I know that in our family, our kids were very aware that if you know, something got broken accidentally, even if it was a you know, valuable heirloom, it wasn't a big deal. It was just stuff. But if we lied, then that was a really big deal because it destroyed something important. 
our family, our relationships. In verse 29, it says, we're to speak to build up according to their needs that it may be helpful for those who listen. We're to speak in a way that's, that's edifying, uh, in a way that encourages our brothers and sisters as they press on in their walk with God. Now, I'm not thinking we, we can't make small talk with our friends, but I suspect we probably tend to default to small talk when we do better to be more deliberate about how we encourage one another to live for Jesus. We need to support one another when the going's tough, to care for one another when we grieve. Do be deliberate in how you use your words. I have a friend uh, called David Wright. David's currently a lecturer at the Bible College of South Australia. And for many years, he was on staff in the Trinity Network of Churches. Now, initially, when I knew David, I used to find myself finishing off all his sentences. He just seemed so slow to get his ideas onto his tongue. But actually, I discovered he wasn't slow at all. He was just thoughtful. Whenever David talks to me, he asks insightful questions and he positively encourages. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in the yard after a church meeting and he came up to me and asked how I was going. He said he, he thought it must have been very stressful trying to oversee a series of churches during the COVID period. He knew that there were several leaders who'd been around Trinity for years who'd died recently or were currently going through treatment for cancer or other life-threatening illnesses. Um, he was aware of the fact that Sue, my wife, had been in hospital with pneumonia for eight days. Uh, he mentioned the fact that uh, we we're about to have a, another granddaughter and that I also had a, a son and his wife with two grandchildren in lockdown in Sydney during this time. So he's just asking, how was I going having mentioned those things? And then before he left, he said he thought that my preaching over the last four or five months had been really rich and he thanked me for working so hard to teach the Bible. Do give some thought to who you can encourage or who you can thank for the way in which they serve and care for us. There are lots of people that are visible when it comes to our Sunday meetings but there are lots of people behind the scenes too. I mean, who haven't you seen in recent weeks? Why not give them a call and find out how they're traveling? See if you can organize to have coffee with them. Steward your words well. This section also talks about the way in which we're to handle our emotions in a godly way. In verse 26 of uh, Ephesians 4, it says, In your anger, do not sin. And then in verse 31, it says, get get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I've got a uh, friend who talks about the great Christian car park miracle. He says that uh, couples and families can have been having a World War III at home on a Sunday morning. And then when they come to church and park their car, the amazing car park miracle occurs. You know, they get out of their car and they see someone else from church and they say, brother, sister, how are you going? 
wonderful, you, you know, terrific. You know, the, <laughs> the great car park miracle. But can I say, anger is real. That's the point in this passage, verse 26, in your anger. But then it goes on and says, do not sin. How do you do that? Now, we're in a culture where we justify anger. Not only the reasons for it, but also our right to express it. I mean, it's not healthy for me, is it, to bottle up my anger, right? Now, there can be a a righteous or a, a right sort of anger. It's just that in my experience, it's so hard to stop that festering into sin. I mean, anger morphs into bitterness. You know, we, we design mental dolls of people who've hurt us. They bear the image of the person and we, we stick pins in it. That's what happens when you hang on to anger. It, it just destroys relationships. I mean, sure, you will get angry. But the question is whether you will deal with the anger in a God-honouring way. Verse 26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You might get angry, but can I say you have no right to stay angry? And if you do stay angry, then that's your problem. It's one you need to own. You can't blame the person who you think has harmed you. If you let anger fester, it just operates like rust in your soul. It eats away and it destroys you and your relationships. Then it talks about what to put on. Uh, Verse 32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another as the Lord forgave you. When someone has done something to damage you, and that's the presumption here, that's the reason you have to forgive, what we're to do is to think about how we can be kind back how to care for them, how you can forgive them, how you play a gospel track in your head, not the unbeliever revenge track. We're to forgive as the Lord forgave you. And you might say, well, I'll forgive them just as soon as they apologise. I mean, they need to repent first. Now, can I just point out the obvious here? Uh, God sent his son Jesus to die for your sin before you repented. We need to take responsibility for our own anger and to deal with it. Now, let me just say a brief word about uh, domestic violence and anger in relationships. There is no place for domestic violence in any marriage, let alone Christian marriages. And if you're in a situation like this, then do tell your pastor or your Bible study leader, or or someone else who can help you work out what to do about it. Uh, DV, it it is rarely resolved by ignoring it. Uh, At the end of the day, it's also generally not going to be loving to let a partner or a friend sin against you in this way. Abuse may not be physical, of course, uh, but it may still involve anger uh, to manipulate or control or coerce. And again, there is no place for a pattern of anger in Christian marriage or any relationship. And if you're dealing with someone who has that powder keg fuse 
and you walk around on eggshells, that is not appropriate. It will require support and assistance and counselling and prayer for that sort of thing to be resolved. And it doesn't help to hide it away. Uh, I think it's the whole anger thing. It's a hidden sin in Christian homes in Australia. And I'd be surprised if that isn't the case in this congregation. And if you're someone who has a problem with anger, don't justify it or explain it away. You know, it's just the way my family always dealt with conflict or or you just don't understand the stress that I'm under. Uh, This is the word for you. In your anger, do not sin. This passage also uh, talks about our attitude to stuff and the transformation in our thinking that happens around that. Uh, If I had to nominate an area where our culture displays the most extreme form of Ephesians 4 verse 17, you know, futility of thinking, it would be the way in which we think about stuff. We're we're a culture that's just addicted to toys, you know, to purchased experiences, uh, to travel, although we haven't had so much of that lately. And we overvalue the, the happiness that what we own or the, what we have in the bank, that the happiness that those things can bring. And it's just a natural outworking of a, a three-dimensional worldview. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, it, it talks about the way in which the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance with God in heaven. It's that hope that shapes our convictions and our choices. When it comes to materialism, we need to get rid of the old clothes, the old way of thinking. In verse 28, it says, anyone who's been stealing must no longer steal. I think it must have been a very interesting church if that needed to be stated. Yeah, those of you who've been robbing houses, you should just cut that out. But of course, there are a whole variety of ways that we can dishonestly cut fiscal corners. You know, we can be a bit too sharp in our business dealings or a bit careless with our tax or inappropriately claiming for JobKeeper, you know, fudging the the facts. And, And why would you do that? Well, it's because you think having more money and stuff is more important than having integrity before God. But I suspect the biggest issue for us is not um, theft, but the flip side of that, the clothing we put on. It's the growth in generosity. Verse 28 talks about the fact that uh, instead of stealing, uh, the thief should work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those who are in need. Now, I think a congregation like ours will probably have a fairly decent work ethic, but not necessarily a biblical framework for why we work. Um, Often, I think in our culture, we see work as something that provides us with a sense of uh, personal satisfaction or significance. But, But as Christians, we don't get our meaning from work, but from the one who is the creator. And then we work in the creation as we serve God. Elsewhere, the Bible talks about earning money to provide for ourselves and for our families. But we also work 
so that we can share with those in need. We work to actually give money away. Uh, this week I met with a middle-aged woman who had been caught up in a cult. At one stage she sold her home unit and she was pressured into giving a large amount of the proceeds of that, that sale to the cult leader. It meant she had nothing to live on. And then she told me that there were a couple at a Trinity church who'd given her the money for short-term accommodation and also so she had something to live on. I can remember a man in our congregation who came to see the senior pastor of the church uh, saying that he could either give more time for ministry or he could dedicate himself to making more money for ministry. And the pastor said to him, you are very good at making money and it doesn't control you. You're generous with it. Make money and give it away. He did and he has. He's done that for decades. A test of Christian maturity is whether we're clothing ourselves in generosity. Now, this is an area that I've really had to work on as a follower of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, stealing has not been a problem. But giving away money, that's much harder. Uh, can you remember what you did with your first pay packet? Well, in my family of origin, we saved it. Now, you could never be careful enough when it came to money. And so when I became a Christian, I actually struggled to give my money away. I mean, I decided I should. I tithed to both you know, to church, to mission, to those in need, but it was more of an obligation. And then once the obligation was satisfied with 10%, I could squirrel away the balance for my own purposes and use. But of course, that's not generosity. So what I've worked at is trying to keep giving more and more away. Uh, each year, Sue and I have tried uh, to not only increase the amount we give in dollar terms, but also the percentage we give. Now, I, I don't think I'll ever be just carefree about giving money away, but I don't want to be controlled by my money or my assets. I want to control them in the service of God. So are you growing in maturity in this area? Do just openly talk about it with brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, what we're looking at in this passage is the fact that the gospel is meant to transform our lives and our communities in every area. It starts with our convictions and our minds and then it flows into every aspect. Now, today we've looked at speech and emotions and what we own. So let me, let me pray that we'll not only talk the talk, but we'll also walk the walk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which you have uh, convicted us of the truth of the gospel, your grace and your mercy and your kindness. And Father, we pray that we'll just keep transforming our hearts, our thinking, our attitudes and our behaviours. Uh, particularly, as we've looked at this morning, help us to speak in a way that edifies, uh, help us to... Uh, be aware of the way in which our emotions are handled in a godly way. Help us be generous with all the resources that you've given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.